This week on The Sport Blokes. This week, Novak Djokovic and Ash Barty are king and queen of Wimbledon. Team USA drop two in a row while the NBA Finals continue. Stop with the freaking lasers already. <laughs> and we have a look at contenders versus pretenders in the AFL. Does that make Dylan Alcott the prince? Yes. Let's go. Well, Shuey, it's just past 8.30 here in Perth on the 14th of July. It is a Wednesday night, as we do at the top every week. What caught your attention and what did you miss? Well, probably the most unsurprising massive news since we've started recording, actually. Tokyo Olympics will take place without fans after Tokyo has placed itself into a state of emergency. Indeed. Don't think we saw that coming, did we? Well, yeah, there's more COVID running rampant throughout what we'll be talking about this evening. Yeah, but look, it's probably the only good call that we've had made on the Olympics so far when you think about it. So I actually have to applaud them for making the call. It's going to be fascinating to see what these games are like without real crowds. I mean, we've seen varying different degrees of success from a number of sports that have tried to do something without the crowds anyway. I mean, mm. will there be blow-up sex dolls? Will there be... <laughs> like at the baseball yeah, will, will there just be uh. just ridiculous cutouts? Who knows what they'll be? You have to think the Japanese will have something up their sleeves. And on the note of the Olympics, I saw, you know, those stupid lists that you see on Facebook where it's like 50 of the best tweets about this. I don't use Facebook, so no, I don't. Just just say yes for the... Yes, <laughs> yes, true. I know exactly what you're talking about. Look, I was scrolling through the other weeks, a little bit bored, and I saw one that was like 50 memes or tweets about the Olympic Games and I thought oh look you know what they're usually clickbait but I'm going to have a look at this because it is sport related and most of them weren't too bad but one of them did particularly make me laugh quite a bit and it basically said me oh cool that chick did a somersault on her snowboard the, the Olympic announcer amazing she was the first to land a quadruple French toast raincoat Oliuk backslide September 11th in competition since Laxwana Vetroiva invented the trick in 1982 me yeah that, that's what I meant <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. I could imagine someone sort of watching the TV and and that going through their head. And the other thing that caught my attention is that it's great to see that America has apparently eradicated COVID completely. Uh, Okay. Uh, Oh, well, uh, I mean, there was that setup in Deer Park in Milwaukee for the finals where thousands of Bucks fans were packed in like sardines without masks. So I I just assumed. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, on our Twitter, at SportBlokes. For the uh, little plug there, I funnily enough, after game one or during game one or two, I posted a thing using the fear the deer hashtag saying, eh, it should probably be more like fear the contagion or fear yeah, the spread. Fear the spread, yes. Yeah, yeah. That is absolutely it. But we'll talk NBA final shortly. Oh, yes. Lots of basketball to talk about, as always. How about yourself, mate? Well, I thought with NADOC week over, I'd highlight some tremendous athletic achievements from the Indigenous community in Australia and and records too. So it's been just a fantastic coincidence uh, with NADOC week. Well, maybe not a coincidence. Maybe it's helped them rise to the occasion. So it started with Sean Burgoyne's 400th game in the AFL, first Indigenous player to do so, and very few players have achieved that in VFL-AFL history. He's only the fifth player ever. And the great thing was seeing him cheered off. Well, he played the game against Port, which was cool. Yeah. Uh, and seeing him chaired off by one of his teammates and one of the Port players too was fantastic. I can't remember who it was. I must confess I didn't take a note of it, but I thought that was really nice. It continued with Australia's Olympic athletes breaking the records for Indigenous participation. Paddy Mills was named the flag bearer at the opening ceremony along with Kate Campbell, which was fantastic. Ash Barty won Wimbledon some 50 years after her hero, Yvonne Goolagong, won it in 1971. 
And then it finished with Paddy's game winner against Argentina. So what a great week it was for Indigenous athletes in Australia during that week. And I also noticed that Adam Goods was on play school. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they've actually got a, a really great variety in their cast now. They they have seemingly every single nationality rep- represented. Yeah. Exactly right, as they should. And it's it's been something that they've focused on quite a lot recently is bringing in a lot of that Indigenous culture and heritage. And great. Honestly, like in all sincerity, it is great seeing him on the TV without someone booing at him. It's really, it's really nice. I think he's got a master's in Indigenous studies, or so, he's, or maybe even he's he's done. Yeah, so a couple of other things quickly. There's been a bit of double standards. So the NRL has moved to Queensland and they've created hubs, but the Olympic athletes haven't been granted the same exemptions that the NRL players have, which is a bit of a problem. So I thought there was a very interesting thing on Instagram by Eloise Wellings. So she said, so wait, there are 400 NRL players and staff given special exemption to be relocated to Queensland so that the football season can carry on. But then there are eight Olympic track and field athletes who are just weeks away from competing for Australia at the Olympic Games, but remain stuck in Sydney's lockdown because they have not been given the same privilege of an exemption to join the athletes Team Bobble in Cairns for the final preparations for Tokyo. Mm. So that's disappointing. It is. And then the other classic thing was uh, Zayla Avant-Garde, who won the spelling bee. And the, the winning word was Maria, which is, I think it was like a plant life by the Murray River in Australia. Oh, right. So there's like that Australian connection. But she also holds world records for dribbling basketballs. Huh. And she has a handle. Like she is quite an amazing young lady. And they asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. And the first thing she said, she said NBA coach, not WNBA player. Cool. So, yeah, fascinating cool. uh, fascinating thing there. What did you miss, mate? Well, I actually missed the third set of Ash Barty's historical win at Wimbledon the other night. Oh, no. Yeah, so I was working late, had a 10 p.m. finish, and it was pretty quiet at work, so I had the game fired up on the computer. Don't tell my boss. Uh, <laughs> but when Carolina Pliskova tied it at one set all at 10.30, I had to make a move. Uh, I had to get home. So I ended up driving home while the third set was on, and Ash won it just as I pulled into my suburb. So you cranked it on the radio? No, I had it on my phone. Which oh, I was yeah, in, you were listening to the audio only which, and concentrating on the road at all times. Which I was not looking at while I was driving. Definitely Correct. not. Very good. Correct. How about yourself, no? Well, I missed today's Boomers game against Nigeria, which was a little bit scary after what's happened recently, and we'll get to that because uh, I was at work, but I have got it taped, so I look forward to watching it soon. What was scary about it? Well, after they beat Team USA. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh. So, Shui, Ash Barty has won her second Grand Slam title after claiming Wimbledon, the first Australian woman to do so since Yvonne Gulligan-Cawley in 1980. Yeah. What a tremendous effort. Absolutely spectacular. I would like to take a lot of credit for this. <laughs> power of negative thinking. The ultimate in power of negative thinking. <laughs> this, this was a two-tiered. I was going to go back and listen to the episode where you mentioned she may never win again, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> this is a two-tiered power of negative thinking for me. Oh. So, yes, anyone who has listened to our show for a while might remember a while back me saying, I was a bit worried that Ash might never win another Grand Slam. That worked. <laughs> And on top of that, after the second set, I messaged our sports chat group saying, I think Ash is in trouble here. Double boom. Oh, yes. 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 No, she played just an amazing tournament. She, I mean, okay, she served to win the tournament in the second set of the final, got broken to love. But the greats always talk about the last service game being the hardest game to win. And Oh, yeah, it's like closeout games in any series. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And look, she didn't serve amazingly well in the final, but she showed that Aussie grit. She fought. She clawed her way through every part of that final. And, yeah, to do so 50 years after Yvonne Goulding and Corley won her first Wimbledon in 1971, truly special, especially with her wearing that throwback set of shorts. Yeah, I didn't realise that until afterwards. Really, yeah. really cool. I must ask, Shui. 
do you think part of the reason why she failed to close it in that second set was because the crowd kind of started rooting for Pliskova because I don't think it was because they were against Barty, but I think they just wanted to see the thing go the three sets. Yeah, and this is the thing. When you've got a crowd who doesn't really have a dog in the fight, they yep. don't have... There was no Brit in there. there well, it hasn't been a, a Brit in the Wimbledon final for a long oh, time. Oh, they got excited about some young 18-year-old who made it to the second or third round, but yeah. that was about it, yeah. But this is it. When they've paid their money... They very much want it to go three sets in the women. Or and five, I would too. Five sets in the men. Yeah. I, I get, yeah, yeah, 100% get that. But yes, you're right. I mean, she didn't, like, she served terribly. There's no way that you can get around the fact that she just didn't serve great. She didn't have much purpose in her serve during that particular game. Across the match, it was a little bit iffy. There were a few double faults. But during a lot of the big points where she really needed to win them, those little kick serves out wide were great. The body serves were great. She volleyed really well. And she had less doubles than Pliskova did. Mm. Oh, probably. She, they had a couple. They had, well, she, I think Ash had a few and Pliskova had a few more. Pliskova just kept seeming to hit the net all the time. She was catching the tape all the time. And the other thing was that she looked rattled after like three games into the first set. Mm. So she did really well to even force that third set. I mean, look, Pliskova does play a very high-risk, high-reward game. She hits a lot of flat balls. I mean, the, the point that won the match, she hit into the net. So yeah. you, you, you know that that's kind of... Which kind of summed it up for her. It, yeah. it did. It did. But look, she yeah, she also had a, a really great tournament. And look, you've got to also point out that Ash was quite lucky. I mean, she didn't really play many high-seeded players. I think... She Pliskova, had a fairly... Soft run. Fairly soft yeah. run. Pliskova at eight was the highest seed that she played in the entire tournament. Not quite as easy as the French Open where she only played one seeded player in the entire thing. But I think she had Krejcikova, who was the 14 seed, and then there was one other, oh, uh, Kerber. Oh, yeah, Angelique in the semi. Who was the, the 25 seed. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But has, you can only play the people in front of you, can't you? 100%. So, yeah. 100%. And, look, obviously incredibly sad that Serena Williams didn't get a chance to make a run at it. God knows how far she would have gone. Yes. I mean, obviously, the, the older she gets, the harder it is for her to get through those second weeks. And, yeah. And without having Simona Halep in there, without Osaka. having Naomi Osaka, in yeah. there, it, it is a slightly easier draw for her. But, as you say... You've still got to beat the players in front of you. And Carolina Pliskova is a hell of a player. Oh, yeah. She'll win her first Grand Slam soon enough, I'm sure. You would think so. Yeah. Some quick Ash Barty stats, Shuey. Go for it. So her performance at Wimbledon means that she's now spent 77 consecutive weeks as world number one and 84 total weeks. That has her in the top 10 for both. And her Wimbledon paycheck of just over $3 million actually puts her into 18th on the all-time list for career prize money for women's tennis players. Now, that's more of a sign of how much money's gone up over yeah, the years. I think, I think that is. But, but it's, still, still, it's still a fair effort. Yeah. And, I mean, she's young, so she's got plenty of time to catch up. And it couldn't have happened to a better person. Absolutely. Now, I was very patriotic, Stewie. I watched the full Barty match and the full all-cop match, but I must confess I did not watch the men's final in favour of watching basketball instead. So I'll hand it to you on the, uh, well... Yet another Djokovic win. Yeah, look, I'll talk a little bit sort of more around the semis and the final because there, there was a little bit in there. Now, I said last week that I kind of thought that the moment would get to some of these younger guys in a semi-final or a quarter-final. And so Denis Shapovalov, the Canadian, absolutely owned the first set against Novak Djokovic. Absolutely owned it. He basically did an ash party, though. Mm. He served for the set and managed to get broken at 5-4. What happens? They go to a tie break. Djokovic finds a way to win. He absolutely dominates the second set, has numerous, numerous breakpoint opportunities, finished one of 11 on breakpoints in the entire match. And every single time, it just felt like Djokovic would find a way. He would find the winner. He would defend. 
and just just grind out those services. And that's when that experience really rises to the fore, doesn't it? Absolutely. Tie breaks, those sort of high-pressure situations. Yeah. I mean, even just going back to the first set for a second, up to that 5-4 point, Shapovalov had lost two points on his serve the entire set. Wow. Two points, and then he gets broken. It's, it is amazing how often that happens. And you just you knew what was going to happen. But look, amazing effort from Djokovic. As I said, the moment kind of got to Shapovalov, he will have his time. He is a superb player, has one of the best one-hand backhands on the, on the circuit, and being a lefty, always tricky. If we fast forward to the final now against Matteo Berrettini, the moment came really early in this one. One all in the first set, Djokovic down love 30 on his serve. And he played a fairly average volley. All Berrettini had to do was take two steps forward and just hit it into the open court. He catches the net. Mm. And what happens? Instead of going love 40, three break point opportunities, goes back to 15-30. Djokovic works his way through it and then goes on. Now, mm. he, he did lose the first set. I will say that. So Berrettini actually did find a way to win that in a, in a tie break. But it was those little moments where... You just kind of felt like this is the moment for Berrettini to step forward, take whatever it is, the game, the set, whatever, by the throat. He just couldn't do it. And the result was Djokovic goes on and wins his 20th Grand Slam. So he uh, he goes on and joins Federer and Nadal on that magical 20 number, which he'll obviously pass them. I mean, and the Golden Slam's in play too for him, isn't it? Yeah, it would be. So, yeah, it would very be. interesting at the Olympics to see how he goes. Yeah, there's no Heavy way. calendar there's for him. There's no way he's going to pull out of that. No, well, he'd be crazy too. Federer has just pulled out Yes, today, I so. did see that, yes. So, yes. yeah. And, and it look, it has to be mentioned that I did also say last week that I didn't have faith in Roger Federer because he hadn't been tested. And sure enough, the very next day, in fact, it might have even been that night, he plays against the 14 seed, this Hubert Hukax, who is, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it anyway. It's a very Polish name. But uh, what what happens? He folds like a cheap suit, including a six-love third set. That does not happen to him. Yeah, it's very rare. Well, it's, it's the first time he's ever taken a bagel at Wimbledon. It's only the second time this century he's lost a set six-love as a top 100 player. I, I love the guy. He's an idol of mine. He is going to be the wrong side of 40 by the time the US Open rolls by. As we mentioned, he's just pulled out of Wimbledon. Yes, I just don't see a world where he threatens a Grand Slam moving forward. He'll get to the second week of the odd one here and there, but I think Father Time has pretty much caught up to him. So after the Barty comment, uh, that almost guarantees that he will win at least one more. I wouldn't be disappointed if that happened. <laughs> but no, look, great tournament. This is this is the joy of Wimbledon. There's always great storylines, you know, in, in this case for the, the women's side. Ash Barty making this historical run and, and managing to do what no one's done for an Australian in 40 years. And on the men's side, Djokovic making history as well. And it has to be said, he actually went into the locker room after beating Shapovalov and consoled him because he was in tears. He was distraught at the fact that he'd thrown away a golden opportunity to make a Grand Slam final. And he basically told him, you were going to have your time. Like you played an amazing game. We, we often give a lot of grief to Djokovic for some of the stupid things he does. And it's only fair of us to give him oh, credit. Oh, yeah, credit where credit's due, yeah, if of he, course. You know, he's done something really, really great, and it, and it is a nice gesture because these guys are competing against each other for everything. To be able to then turn around and go, actually, dude, you're going to be okay, so it's great. And speaking of great, Dylan Orcott, his second Wimbledon on the wheels, he absolutely dominates wheelchair tennis. He is a joy to watch. He's almost like a Yankee. He, he's almost like a, a US player he, with his like borderline arrogance. 
Yeah. Uh, and the bravado. And it's he's so funny. So he'll he'll literally big up himself. He'll go, great shot to himself <laughs> after he hits a great shot. And he's constantly going, come on, deal, come on, deal, and talking to himself. He's just so entertaining. And just when you think he's too arrogant or just when you think it's maybe a bit much, he'll say great shot to the other guy when mm-hmm. they score a winner against him. So Sam Schroeder put up a bit of a fight. It's got to be said. He did still beat him in straight sets, but he's only, I think, 21. So I think he'll be a very good up-and-coming wheelchair tennis player for many years ahead. And I I would actually love to see them expand the field because the problem that they have is that there's only four guys in that quad. So you've got, obviously, Dylan, the number one seed, Andy Lapthorne, the two seed, and then you've got these two other guys who are unseeded, who basically just be three and four. And Schroeder's actually the doubles partner for, for yes, Dylan mates, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they actually lost the, the doubles final to these other two players yeah, yeah. and then had to play each other in the singles yeah. final. And that's where I think the, the game's maybe lacking. They need to get a few more players into that so that it's, it's a slightly more... Yeah, more oh, definitely, definitely. And, and But it'll be players like Dylan that will inspire the younger kids to want to pick up a racket even though they're in a wheelchair and to play. And he's so entertaining. The crowd loved it. I'd love to see that final on centre court. I reckon a mm. packed stadium, it's very enjoyable to watch. It is. And yeah, great speech at the end. I just, uh, it's hard not to love Dylan Alcott. So absolute hats off to him too. A great weekend for Australia at Wimbledon. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week, unfortunately, belongs to one of the English fans, I'm using air quotes here, from yeah. the semi-final of the Euros who decided that one way to help the lads win would be to shine a laser pointer into the eyes of Danish goalkeeper Kasper Schmeichel. Mm. As if the semi-final of the Euros doesn't come with enough pressure, let's just flash something in his eye that could potentially cause him permanent blindness. This was after the English fans also booed through the Danish national anthem. I was about to mention the same thing. Mm. Yeah, terrible. There is absolutely nothing funny or clever about this. We've seen instances in the past where players have had to deal with flares or having coins or bottles or other projectiles thrown at them. But something that has the potential to blind someone, that is next level misconduct. Oh, it's terrible. The other thing I think that is really disgraceful about this is the fact that people around this guy didn't dob him in. Mm. I'm assuming it's a him. Yes, probably. You would would have to assume it probably is. But but they're basically saying that they support this moron's actions and basically win at all costs, damn the consequences or any collateral damage. Mm. Like that's, they're condoning what what he's doing, which is, it's just not on. And, of course, they won that semi on a very dubious uh, penalty. Too. Well, we'll get to that in a, in a minute. Yeah. The ironic thing about this is the guy who did it is probably a Leicester City fan anyway, and Kasper Schmeichel is their goalkeeper. Yeah, well, yeah, that would so be ironic. So I would imagine that that's probably the level of irony that is involved in something as stupid as this. So I guess for uh, for flashing the worst of the worst in someone's eyes, all I can say is, oh, God, bloody hell. Bloody hell. Well, let's keep going with the Euro, Stewie. As I mentioned... England thought it was coming home after some luck in the semi-final. Yes, they, they very much did. We won't talk about the semi-finals too much because there's a, a little bit to talk about relating to the final. Oh, there's a lot off the field too. Of yeah, course. mostly off the field, unfortunately. But look, yeah, Italy clearly showed their great at penalty shootouts. They took out Spain. The penalty that, that Raheem Sterling drew against Denmark was a blatant dive to me. I don't think anyone can convince me otherwise. Oh, yeah, he barely touched him. It was terrible. Yeah. I think- and it was really interesting to see on Twitter, like English fans trying to justify, oh, it was definitely a penalty. And no. No, he was looking for contact. And as soon as he felt anything near him, he went down. 
the line of tack I would have taken was rather than, yes, it was definitely a penalty, is the tack that my girlfriend's dad took when I talked to him about it. He was like, mate, we're still reeling from hand of God. We can have this one, please. <laughs> so yeah. fair and, enough. And They're on the wrong end of that one. Yeah, and the thing is there was a, a very credible penalty shout earlier in the second half that wasn't paid. Yes, a lot of Twitter people were saying that too. So, yeah, you've got to be prepared to say, look, this one wasn't, but perhaps that's sort of slight justice, I guess. But let's focus most of our attention onto the final. So the English versus Italian teams. And there's some before the play on the pitch even started. So all these people broke in. I think it was, I think it was a lot of people, like hundreds of people broke in past really poor security. I think it was through a disabled entrance or something. And so a lot of fans that had paid for tickets that were in excess of a thousand dollars got to their seat seeing that there were already hooligans sitting in their seat. Who had broken in. And I saw some horrible footage on Twitter where they were just indiscriminately punching the shit out of people. And there was one guy on the ground just kind of with his arms out going, like, what the hell, dude? Like, what did I do to deserve this? And they're still just banging on. So even before the ball was kicked, they really did themselves a disservice, some of the English fans. And obviously, we can't put them all in the same basket. But yeah, they, they did not acquit themselves well. And, and this is why football fans do unfortunately get such a bad reputation, regardless of how good or bad they are. So, yeah. And I mean, look, the game itself, I think we probably almost need to fast forward to the end of the game because that's where a lot of the, the big controversies yes, are. Yes, that's where the news is. So I guess we have to ask a, a, a question. Is there anything both better or worse than a soccer final going to penalties? <laughs> well, the purists will tell you it's the worst way to decide a game. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And the thing is, if you, if you look at the shootout and how it went, it absolutely should have been coming home. England led 2-1. Andrea Bellotti had just had his penalty saved. Harry Maguire scored to go up 2-1. But Well, it's got to be said, a couple of blokes were subbed in and barely got a run on the paddock. They were subbed in basically just to have shots. And this is the problem, is that the trio of guys that took the next three shots for England, 23-year-old Marcus Rashford, 21-year-old Jaden Sancho, and even worse, 19-year-old yeah. Mikai Osaka. And I think he played a minute. Yeah. Yeah. All of them missed. Yeah. And, and this erupted this massive debate about why players like Raheem Sterling or Jack Grealish didn't step up and take them, given their relative experience. These guys are quite a few years older. They've been there. They've done that. Grealish was pretty keen to point out vehemently on social media that he absolutely stepped up and said he wanted to take one. But Yeah, I saw that on Twitter too. You, you just can't leave a 19-year-old on one of the biggest stages in world football alone in front of those bright lights. It's tricky though, isn't it? Because it's it's really easy to say that after the fact. If he'd slotted it through, he'd be the hero. So Yeah, but as I say... It's, it's risky. It, it was a risk. It, it, it's not a risk that should have been taken. These more experienced players should have stepped up. And look, the chances are that maybe they score and England win 4-3 on penalties and we don't even talk about this. But the problem is, though, that what makes it worse is the fact that, unfortunately, all three of them are, are of colour. Mm. And what happens with this sort of shit? Oh, I saw some of the tweets. People tweeting monkey emojis, people using the N-word. There was all sorts of horrible shit. And there's this... Dude, huge, it's fucking disgraceful. It is. There's this huge mural in Manchester depicting rash. Oh, yeah, I heard about that on the radio. Yeah, it was yeah. defaced and people were writing, again, horrible racial slurs on there. Oh, it's terrible. The, the positive that I take out of this is it did not take long for those to be covered up with bin bags and adorned with positive messages. It is so great to see that the love and support of the many far outweighs the ridiculous persecution of the few. Yes. And and there is, there's no better way to look at it is that these people are keyboard warriors. They are 
faceless hooligans that that feel like they're being heroes when they're really not. Oh, and I'd love to see them try and kick a penalty shot. And and this is a point that has actually been made. Is they're that, fucking cowards. Is, exactly. Yeah. This 19-year-old who stepped up and missed the last penalty is a thousand times braver than these guys will ever be. Yep. Imagine putting your hand up and saying, like, I'll give this a go. Yep. Fuck no. No one's going to do that. No one in their right mind would. This kid is so brave. So, yeah, it's disgusting. And then it got worse thanks to Channel 7 Media on Facebook. Yeah, unfortunately, they managed to post online, quote, three black players failed in the penalty shootout, which England lost 3-2 against Italy before removing the word black two hours later. There's a real value in proofreading, isn't there, sometimes? Well, okay, I'll play devil's advocate here, and I absolutely by no means think that this was a smart decision. But the post linked to an article about racism and the comment that was made was almost like a subheadline that would appear under a headline. The problem is that that headline was not there. So without the context, it, it, it was a terrible decision. And yeah. it never, I mean, you don't see a thing that says three white players missed, do you? No. So, and this, and this is the problem is that it kind of almost puts into this context that, oh, because they were black, they missed. It's just so unnecessary. Which is. Which is Obviously yeah. so wrong. But so yeah. the article deals with racism. I don't see why you need to, to point that out any you further. Because don't. if people don't read the article, that's the impression that they have. Yeah. And, and what, what's even worse for me is the lack of apology. Yeah. They did the old, oh, it was regrettable. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Regrettable is not sorry. Yeah. No that's shit. No a shit. different word. No shit, it's regrettable. It's, it's re- that shit always says to me it's re- regrettable we did something stupid. Like, we don't, yeah. we don't apologise for it. Like we that. feel bad we got caught oh. rather than we feel bad we did something stupid. Take responsibility for yeah, your they sh- There's nothing wrong with saying sorry when you fuck up. Now, the game itself is almost inconsequential compared to all of that, especially given what's going on with the world right now, except for the fact, I guess, that it was a final. Maybe that's probably the thing that... Oh, yeah, and it was huge. And, and again, England thought it was finally coming home again. But yeah. no, they fell at the final hurdle. And it has to be said that England were both lucky and unlucky in this. They they scored in the first two minutes of the match, but Italy had 62% of the possession, 20 shots on goal to six, six on target to just one. Goalkeeper Jordan Pickford, he had a great game. He had five saves during the match, a couple of them that were just heroic, but Italy dominated. I mean, hell, if you look at the stats, they actually completed 415 more passes Wow. Than England. Fennigham. 415 more. <laughs> Bloody hell. That's how much they dominated. Wow. Yeah, okay. Um, there's a lot of talk about Italy being a bit shifty. You know, there was that famous photo of the bloke pulling the other bloke by the shirt. And this is where England can feel that they were a little bit unlucky. So there were actually two instances in the extra time where players from Italy probably should have been sent off. So the first one that you mentioned, so Giorgio Cialini should have been sent off. He basically pulled Saka down by the shirt collar, which in my opinion, he was running through, would have probably beaten the last defender. And you're, Anything talk- can happen and you're talking yeah. probably a shot on goal that yeah. might win it. So yeah, absolutely should have been a red card. And Giorgino should have been sent off he showed studs up on a challenge on Grealish. That's a red card almost every day of the week, except for this one, unfortunately. So, yeah, they were a little bit unlucky and a little bit lucky at the same time, both sides. But yeah, it's, it's always a shame when this comes down to a penalty shootout. And it's a shame that the riding continued after the fact. So Formula One, Lando Norris, who's a teammate of Daniel Ricciardo, he actually had a $75,000 watch stolen by soccer hooligans after the fact. Of course he did. So the riding continued. It's it's a real shame. Mm. We do have to look at one fairly funny part, I guess, from it, and it goes to the New Zealand cricket team. <laughs> Scotty Styrus, the tweets, yeah. A couple of classics. So Scott <laughs> Styrus tweeted, 
I don't understand. England had more corners. They're the, <laughs> they're the champions. Hashtag still salty. And don't blame him. And Jimmy Nation tweeted, why is it a penalty shootout and just whoever made the most passes wins? Yeah. Hashtag joking. <laughs> to which I say hashtag bullshit, Jimmy. Oh, yeah, but I'd be salty for the rest of my life. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, no, and we know all about salt after that. We, we really do. We really do. But no, look, it's a shame, but congratulations to Italy. Indeed. So, Shui, we've got to talk about the biggest news in world basketball at the moment. Team USA, with a total NBA bill of $3.4 billion, who had previously only lost two exhibition games in 10,581 days, have now added another two in 48-ish hours and another one to the Aussies. Yeah, second time we've beaten them ever. Crazy. Absolutely amazing. They're losing their shit in America over this too. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, if they'd lost to Argentina, the place would, well, have, been, yeah, yeah. would have been big problems. But yeah, it's uh, it's easy to forget that the USA actually beat Nigeria by 83 points at the London Olympics I in saw 2012. That. Yeah, I saw that screenshot. Now, okay, given this was a team that had LeBron James, pre-injury Kobe Bryant, Chris Paul, James Harden, Carmelo Anthony went 10 of 12 on threes in that game. I think it was something like 37 points in 14 minutes. Yeah, it was just stupid. Yeah. But the rest of the world has started to catch up. Yep. So it all started with a loss to Nigeria. And hey, very athletic team, have some NBA players like Precious Achuya, have a former championship winning coach in Mike Brown. And coach of the year in 2009. So fantastic effort by the Nigerian team. And they'll be primed heading into the Olympics yeah, very well, soon. Well, I mean, they've got Josh Okogi as well. They've got Gabe Vincent, who's been with Miami for a couple of years now as well. This was a really interesting game. So. Basically, the reason that the Nigerians were able to win this, 20 and 42 from three. Yeah, it was huge. Which is ridiculous. I, I think it might have kind of been one of those flash in the pan sort of, you know, lightning in a bottle sort of games for them. I thought that too until they smashed Argentina. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, no, they're, they're definitely not quite that good a shooting team. They do have a couple of guys who are, are very, very good. Vincent yeah. is, is a superb shooter. Yeah. Uh, they've got guys like Caleb Agata, who is a sensational shooter as well when you leave him open. Oh, he played very well. But it was the drive and dish. They were basically getting into the paint at will and just kicking out to these wide open shooters. And I think the, the problem for the United States is that a lot of these guys, if you look at players like Jeremy Grant and Zach Levine, Draymond Green, these guys haven't played for a couple of months. Yeah, that's so, true. Well, and they'd only been together for four days prior to that match. Yeah. So, so, so we often talk about the chemistry and a lot of people think that that only really applies to the offensive end. But the defensive chemistry oh, is, Absolutely. is massive. Yeah, and, yeah. That's what we saw in that game. Especially when there's more zone as well, which some NBA players aren't as used to. There's no defensive three seconds in the key. Yep, they're not used to playing yeah, different types of defense. And that is why they got so many great shots. And, and, and also, the stars don't get the fouls. You know, you get breathed on in the NBA as a superstar and you're going to the line. That is not going to happen in FIBA play. And, and that's an adjustment for these blokes. The other thing that really impressed me about Nigeria is they kind of bucked the conventional wisdom. So the idea of beating US is... Slow it down, limit possessions, hope you'll shoot better. Now, they did shoot better, but they actually tried to get out on the break as much as they could and really use their athleticism to their advantage, which was a bold strategy, but one that paid off. Well, it's not often that you see teams that are more athletic than the Americans, but for the vast majority of the Nigerian team, they are super bouncy. Yep, blocking shots, throwing down dunks, running the floor like gazelles. It was fantastic. That's it. And yeah, we've already mentioned Josh Okogi. He is a sensational defensive player. He's one of those guys that you feel will probably be an all-defensive player in the NBA at some stage. 
they had a couple of lockdown guys, yeah. 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 So, yeah, it, it was really, really crazy. And then obviously it got crazier a couple of nights later when the Aussies knocked them off the same way. And, and the Americans would have been primed. Like, they were embarrassed by Nigeria. Mm. So they would have been really up for the challenge, which is what makes the Australian victory even more impressive. Can I tell you just quickly with Nigeria that I found impressive? Mm. There was no jumping in the centre court celebrating like they'd won gold. They sh- <laughs> It was almost like they lost. Yeah. They shook hands, walked off the court. They were all business. That's really impressive. And to be fair, I think the Aussies did a fairly similar job. There wasn't a whole heap no, of, there wasn't. of that no. as well. And we, and we have beaten them before. But, mm. uh, yeah, no, you're right, yeah. But, like, the Aussies, yeah, they didn't go 20 of 42, but they went 10, no. 10 of 24. I mean, that's still 42%, which yep. is considered an elite percentage, you know, okay, the line's a little bit shorter, but... And this was without Aaron Baines for a significant portion of the game. Yeah, so he went down after about three minutes, bumped, yeah. bumped knees with Damien Lillard, so... I hope it was precautionary they took him out. It's... Yeah, I think it was probably more of a stinger. Yeah. But then that led to other guys getting their opportunities. Landale played extra minutes. Nick Kay played a lot of minutes. Do up Reith had a game. Do up yep. Reith. He's, yeah. He's a beast. He's a beast. He's yeah, got yeah. such good range as well. So he's got an NBA body too. He really does. I don't know if he has an NBA game, but he's got an NBA body. Hmm. So yeah. there, there were a lot of those things. Look, it has to be said the Americans are missing three really good players. Devin Booker, Drew Holiday, and Chris Middleton still playing in the NBA Finals. Yes. So they are missing a lot of offense. And look, those guys are very good defenders. Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday in particular are first-class defenders. Well, and the thing, the other important thing there for me is not just even the offense and defense. It's about roles. So the two most important players for me in Team USA are Draymond Green and Drew Holiday because they're happy with a non-star role. They'll play really great defense. They'll play the team game. They'll distribute. They'll do the dirty work that other players might not be prepared to do. So Drew Holiday is a big player to come into that team. And to an extent, you could almost put Kevin Love in the same basket because he's not a guy who's expecting them to be throwing lobs for him. He's probably just happy to be there, let's face it. Yeah, well, exactly. Probably shouldn't be. But he'll be a guy that will happily get in there and mix it up and draw the contact, get rebounds, all that sort of stuff. So, And, yes, there's a lot of players. There's no LeBron. There's no Steph. There are players missing. But make no mistake. Durant, Lillard, Draymond Green, Bradley Beal, excellent player. This is not a poor team. No. This is not a poor roster. So, look, I think the two losses will motivate them. I dare say they'll probably up their game as they get into the tournament. They did absolutely pants Argentina today, beat them by, I think, 28 points. Well, Argentina come out of it 0-3. They're looking the worst out of anyone, aren't they? Well, their star player is Luis Scola, who's 41. And he played exceptionally well against Australia, didn't he? He he did. But you've also got to remember this is... A, you know, a two-week tournament. So yeah. he will get tired if he's having to play 30, 35 minutes a game to keep the Argentinians even close. So yeah. it's it's not looking great. From a team that's maybe not looking great, though, we do have to talk about our own team. Yes, the, the, the Burmans, yeah, yeah. Look, I, you would not have imagined that we would be the undefeated team after those three games. Oh, perfect preparation, especially given we rested so many blokes today. Yeah, well, that's it. We destroyed Nigeria by 39 without Paddy Mills, Matthew Delavadova, Aaron Baines, and Joe Ingles. Yeah, so, and Josh Giddy got a run, which is really great. Yeah, so Josh Giddy played some great ball. Nick Kay again came in. Chris Goulding shot the lights out, 7 of yeah, 7 yeah. for 21 points. Yeah. So if you look at, I guess, the two real keys to, to this win, the ball movement, 27 assists on 36 field goals, and the three-point shooting, 18 of 29. Wow. That is 62%. So, and then across the three games, the defense was magnificent. 
Yeah, the thing that I've noticed with this this boomer side is it's the most athletic boomer side I've seen. Yeah, fair. Yep. So you think back to the the ones that we're used to seeing in our childhood, so like the 96. Yeah, the guys like Pat Reedy and guys that are very handy, but yeah. they're not going to set the world alight with their athleticism. Well, I mean, Andrew Gaze, yeah, well, Scott him, yeah. Fisher, Andrew yeah. Vlahov. These guys were great players, but they weren't that athletic. Phil Smythe. Yeah. Ray Bourne. Ray Bourne. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the list goes on. But if you look at the guys that are on this side, Matisse Thibel, Josh Green. Oh, we've got to talk Exeter. about Thibel. He looked sensational. Yeah. Sensational at both ends of the floor. He's knocking down threes. Wow. I, I did not realise how athletic he is as well, like how, how much he does get. Oh, yeah, he's bouncy. I, and I saw a great tweet that said, well, at least one of the 76ers guys is improving their game <laughs> in the offseason. <laughs> well, this is the thing. The commentators were all saying, if he has actually added that to his game, and admittedly, oh, the three-point line is shorter in favour. but Well, the corners are still the corners, aren't they? This is very true. Yeah. But yeah, this is what I'm what I'm noticing is that these guys are playing the passing lanes really well. There's a ton of deflections. They're rotating quickly. They're helping the helper. And, and that defensive chemistry that you talked about is clear. Yeah. Yeah. You can just see that guys actually want to win for each other. And it's also one of those things where they put on the yellow jersey and they play better. Yep. There's so many blokes that that jersey just lifts them. Mm. You know, Paddy Mills being the obvious example of that. He would have loved beating Pop, his coach. Oh, he just he turns he turns into Steph Curry. Yeah, he does. A I've heard bit. a number of people yeah. say this, but yeah, look, even guys like Nathan Sobey, who would ordinarily be one of the last men off the bench, he came in playing with confidence, going at guys, hitting shots, you know, getting after guys on defense, so, which yeah. is good after looking a little bit out of his depth earlier. To be honest, yeah. yeah. So yeah, look, I think after all of this the Australians have to really feel like it's not just a case of going after a medal. There's a oh, dis- that, that gold medal mentality. They have to have it. There is a distinct possibility they that absolutely it is, have to it have is it. attainable. And I've got to say, look, I've been a little bit harsh on Exum and Delavidova, but Delhi set a huge screen on that Paddy Mills three. A lot of people wouldn't have noticed that, but that was a massive screen on a bigger guy. That's a big reason why Paddy even had that shot. And Exum's looked pretty good too. So, yeah, yeah even those guys I was a bit worried about are playing superbly well. Can I just finish with a funny tweet, Stewie, by mm. Ryan Rossillo? Yeah. And I tend to agree with him a lot. I do like Ryan Rossillo. If an NBA team with a starting five of KD, Lillard, Tatum, Beal, Draymond played another NBA team of Patty Mills, Delavidova, Ingles, Thibault, number 15. <laughs> so <laughs> Nick Kay. In a seven-game series, no one would pick anything but a sweep. Number 15. A legitimate question. <laughs> that, is a, that is a great... That actually points out, though, how much of... A chasm there is between those two teams. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the benches. Un- yeah. Unknown player number fifteen. Legitimate question: Could you see Nick K as a guy that could play in the NBA? I mean, he kind of fits the same bill to an extent as John Mooney. Yeah, right? where he is a guy who rebounds well. He shoots pretty well to a certain distance out. Blue collar will get the rebounds. You know, doesn't rely on athleticism. Dirty work. Yeah. Yep. I think if anything, he probably has a little bit more of a. If you throw the ball into me, I can face up and get to my spot a little bit better because um, he is a bigger body. But a lot of these role players, coaches want guys that don't want to be the star. Mm. They want guys that don't need the ball. Yeah. So I think he's a guy that could potentially help a team. I don't know. Uh, maybe well, I'm a homer here, but no, no. But he did some really great things today. I mean, there were a couple of times where he's sort of trailing the the semi-secondary fast break and he gets a wide open look from straight away. And we know he... Oh, he'll hit that three. He shoots that three at a high percentage. His last season with Perth, he shot 49% from three. We don't win that championship without him. No, absolutely not. So, yeah, look, I think there's 
probably a case to be made for that. Mm. And he played really well in the last World Cup too, in 2019, it's yep. got to be said. So, yeah, very interesting to see what players make the NBA after these Olympics on all teams across all nations. Yeah. So it feels like a bit of an afterthought now, but the NBA finals are on. Yeah. <laughs> and we've had three games. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. And they've been really good, mm. it's got to be said. Let's start with a big question. How freaking shocked were you to see Giannis walk out in game one? Look, I'll be honest, I thought he should have been kept out, but the way he performed in the warm-ups suggested that he absolutely should have played. And, okay, he wasn't 100%, but he wasn't James Harden for Brooklyn the first time he came back. So, yeah, he absolutely should have played, and he played pretty well. I don't think it even looked like he'd hurt himself. No, I know, I know. Like, there's been some times where he's kind of come up a bit gimpy, but... Yeah, there was one in the second second or third quarter where he showed a little sign of weakness. And, look, he didn't have as good a game as he did in games two and three, but, yeah, he he was very important. I was actually more surprised to hear the boos from the Phoenix fans. That was really disappointing. I understand the counting. Yeah, it, it, I understand the counting the free throws, but why? Why do you have to boo a guy every time he touched the ball? Now, luckily, that didn't persist. But yeah, to start the game, but that like, was poor. Well, that went on for a, a lot of game one. I, yeah. I don't understand. Like, what has Giannis done? Maybe wrong? the first half of game one. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I know. What? You don't want a guy you're booing because he got injured in his play. Like, why, did, why are you even booing? Did he punch a little what did he girl do? or something? Yeah. Yeah. I don't get it. Speaking of a little girl, actually, I saw this little girl when they were doing the, the close ups of the crowd counting while he was shooting the free throws. This little girl, she would have been like seven and she looked like she was expelling a demon. <laughs> she had like eyes were all crossed and she's like <laughs> arms up in the air like one, two, three. Uh, the crowd were loving it, it and was, the casual fans were loving it too. Yeah. I've got to say, I pulled out the stopwatch on a number of occasions through the first two games and it's close to 10. It, it is close. I don't think it's, it's egregious. It's not. I think there's got to be a margin for error and I think it's, I'm, I'm okay with it to be honest. So let's talk a little bit about game one. And and we could very well start with the free throws. We, we did speak about that. Oh, the Suns. Historical. 25 of 26 in the first game. Milwaukee, 9 of 16. Yeah. So that's a, a huge discrepancy to start with. Yeah. But yes, you're right. They're shooting at a historical level. They only missed their first free throw with like a minute left in the game. Jay Crowder, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it might have been. Yeah. So, so 16 extra points in a 13-point game. Oh, yeah, huge. Which is very interesting. Absolutely. The big difference for me in that game, though, it's got to be Chris Paul. He put on a fucking clinic in that game. Oh, yeah, and they they were loving it when they saw Lopez and, to a lesser extent, Tucker at the top there. They were going to dine and, on him. And Bobby Portis as well. And Bobby Portis. Oh, I thought Bobby Portis did a decent job of keeping guys in, in front of him. Decent, Yes. But keeping a guy in he front was of contesting. Him, yeah, but yeah. I mean, every single time they ran that pick and roll, and it, it was kind of like watching the end of the closeout game against the Clippers, where Chris Paul was just getting to his spot. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And, and those two games back to back were very, very good. I mean, th- career games for him, really, yeah. uh, in the top ten of his career games. Let's face it. And it's like if you couldn't get past the player. You mentioned Bobby Portis managed to keep himself in front of Chris Paul. He was just getting to that elbow and hitting, you know, 15 footers. Well, he had 16 points on six of seven in the third. Yeah. And that's and that's basically what won the game. Yeah. They're getting whatever they want. The the only time the Bucks were actually able to make any kind of a move was when Paul was on the bench. And I will ask this question as well. Did you hear that he actually tore ligaments in his hand in game three of the Western Conference semifinals? I knew that he's had hand issues and I've seen him grimacing about his hand on a number of occasions, or both hands at one stage or another, actually. Torn ligaments. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's playing that Oh, well, he wants a championship. So, yeah, look, a couple of big things, I guess, from that game. 
DeAndre Ayton became the first guy with 15 points and 15 rebounds in his finals debut since Duncan in 1999. Also, just the second guy on debut with 20 points at 70% shooting and 15 rebounds, joining a guy named Kareem. And also, with 2015 on 80% shooting, he joined Wilt Russell and Kareem, who also did it on debut. And Chris Paul stole his 20th rebound at the buzzer as well. <laughs> that, that was a shame. Uh. A couple other things. Jay Crowder, the, probably the best O of 8 game you'll ever see. His importance is immeasurable right now. It's funny you say that. So so when the Suns, so obviously they played really well in the bubble. They were definitely a team on the rise. And they got Chris Paul. And I, and I knew it'd be important, but I thought, mm, it's not enough. They're missing another player. Jay Crowder turns out to be that other yeah. player, it seems. Yep. Yeah. I, I said that right from the start. He yeah. is one of those guys you want. Yeah, Cam so John- important player. Yeah. Time. Cam Johnson keeps shooting the ball amazingly. And he's doing a master's thesis, by the way. What an impressive young man he is. Oh, wow. Yeah, they mentioned it in commentary during the game. Jeez, he's the sort of guy you'd want to bring home. Oh, he is a very impressive. He's, he's going to earn himself some money. So he, he he's will. playing really well. Unfortunately, the sour note from that game was Dario Saric tearing up his knee, which it's not great. Oh, it's huge. That's really big. If Aiden gets in foul trouble, not having Saric there, I mean, Kaminsky's clearly shown he's not really nah, up to Frank it. Frank the Tank is not up to yeah, it. Yeah, so, so yeah, that's that's big, actually. And, and look, we've got to mention that DiVincenzo is a big out for Milwaukee, too. Yep. I think he averaged, what, 10, 6, and 3 in the regular season? Like so, that, pretty yeah. important role play. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so, I think the injury is probably fairly balanced amongst both teams. Yeah. Now, before we get to game two, how's this for a fun fact? The team that scored first in the last four finals have all lost. Oh, okay. The Bucks scored first. There you go. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm. I think the interesting thing to me about game one and game two for that matter, but it started after game one, was all this stuff about Milwaukee. I thought they only lost by 10. Like they didn't look that bad. And look, I'm a big believer in a series doesn't begin until the road team wins or game seven. Anything can happen in a game seven if it's gone to home teams prior to that. Mm. I, I was not worried about Milwaukee at all, especially how good Giannis looked after the injury. I was amazed at the negative comments about Milwaukee after game one. I think the negativity was probably more justified by the end of game two. And the reason for that is obviously, yeah, Giannis played out of his skin in game two. I mean, God, second play of the game, he takes three dribbles from the opposing three-point line and dunks the ball. He's obviously... Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's fine. Yeah. First 40.10 rebound finals game in franchise history. Now, admittedly, not many games, but still a, a pretty impressive stat. Well, how's this? He already has more 40-point finals games than KD, Steph, Kobe, Duncan, Bird, Malone, Kareem, and Wilt. And then, along with Rick Barry, Iverson, and Willis Reed, he's third all-time on finals points <laughs> after after a few games. So, I mean, and, and, and going along with all of the counting on the free throws and the injury, what an impressive performance this has been already. Yeah, and like his third quarter. So he had 20 points in the third quarter, most points in a finals quarter since Jordan had 22 on the Suns in 1993. Funnily but enough, the Suns, people, yeah. People taking it to him. Yeah. But he had this look about him that basically said, fuck this, I'm not going down without a fight. He, he wants to win. And he just, he took over. Yep. But it's the other players. It's like Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton were 5 of 24 in the first half of that yeah. game. They well, that, a, yeah. They had a ton of good looks. You often hear, you know, it's a make or miss league. And they just missed. Like 12 of 37, they finished the game out. Holiday was 11 of 35 in the first two games, basically shooting the same percentages as Eric Bledsoe did. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that too. And it's obviously the defense that you get yeah. in that, that sets them apart. But And, and really, I, I think it was fairly clear throughout these playoffs that Milwaukee's success was probably going to be dependent on Middleton and Holiday having four good games out of seven in a series. 
But the, the trick is you've got to have your good players having the good games at the same time because if they're not if they're not happening in the same games, then you're in a bit of trouble. How's this? Paul and Booker's 113 combined points was the most by any starting backcourt in the first two games of finals since starters were tracked in 1971. Funnily enough, the last time Milwaukee won the NBA championship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well done. But what a start to them. And it's got to be said, the tides turned in game three, partly because Holiday and Middleton played better and Booker and Paul played worse. Well, I mean, Paul played okay, but yeah, Booker absolutely stunk it up in game three. Yeah. Just before we get to game three, I did want to just kind of ask you one question, though. Like, I know, obviously, yeah, glass half full is not the way to go with this, but did you ever actually feel like Milwaukee were going to get back into game two properly? The problem for me is I've watched every game knowing the result. So, oh, okay, so yeah. I haven't watched it with fresh eyes. No, that's um, and, and that's why I was surprised after game one. I heard all this negativity and I thought, geez, it's only game one and they're on the road. Yeah, okay. But yeah, yeah, they, he had a shot to bring it down to two. So I, I think that I, if I'd been a Milwaukee fan after the first two games, I would have said to myself, would have liked to have got one, but we're in this. Hmm. We are right in this, especially after the Sarich injury. And game three, absolutely, you know, that it speaks to that. Yep. You had DeAndre Ayton absolutely dominate early in the pick and roll with Chris Paul. But, Before he got in foul trouble. But this is the thing. As soon as he has to go to the bench and Devin Booker was just forcing way too much stuff. Yeah, Booker didn't play very well. Look what happens. Giannis is a facilitator early and then he explodes. He has more free throws than the Suns have on his own. He actually hit a few as well, 13 of 17. Yeah, he shot well from the line. So good percentage. And, yeah, he ends up with a 40-point game, which, as you mentioned, puts him ahead of so many great players. Yeah, yeah. So I've got something on this, Drew. The Suns fans said, it's bullshit. The Bucs went to the line far too often. The Bucs fans said, well, you're fouling Janus every time he touches the ball within a certain area. You're hacking him, basically. Also, game one. I think the truth was somewhere in the middle. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, game game one, I just mentioned, they shot a bunch more free throws yeah. than what Milwaukee did. So. And you can expect to get more calls at home. Absolutely, too. you can. But did you see the scratches on Giannis's arms after game two? Yeah. Like, he's got big-ass scratches on his arms. Yeah. So there's stuff that's not being called, too, I think. Yeah. So what are you supposed to do? Yeah. So I think this really is in a fascinating position. So we've got game four happening tomorrow morning as we record. Yeah. I think this is going to still go six. I think there is a distinct possibility that it could go seven, but I, I'm still leaning towards the Suns in six. I think the momentum shifted to the Bucks. I expect them to win tomorrow. I still think the home court advantage plays into Phoenix's hands, and I think they'll get game five. But I th- And I think it's just going to be one of those performances in game six where someone is going to get hot. Whether So it be- you think Phoenix will win on, on Milwaukee's court? I, I do. Okay. I, I think one of their players, whether it be Paul, whether it be Booker, one of them is going to get hot. What do you make of the extra day off? Normally the game would have been today, but because of the MLB All-Star game, they pushed it back a day. But who does it benefit? Do you think, because the Milwaukee Bucks had a lot of momentum after winning by 20. Yeah, it probably, they probably would have liked to have played today. Yeah, it probably benefits Phoenix. It gives them a little bit more time to rest and sort of get recuperated after that loss and gives them more time to prepare, I guess, for what sort of adjustments they're going to make. But Look, it's the NBA Finals. Just got you. Got to just get up for it. The two keys to me: Giannis should play center as much as possible and try and get as many shots near the ring as much as possible. Aiton needs to stay out of foul trouble. I think the key for Phoenix is turning Giannis into a scorer. That's going to sound weird, but when he facilitates early, and and this is something that a lot of great players have done. Jordan quite often in the first quarter used to try and get other guys involved. LeBron's done it a number of times. You get all of your players going early, 
and then when the time comes, you put the foot down and you, and and you dominate. And it seems Middleton and Holiday play better at home too. And most role players tend to play better at home. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I am fascinated to see what game four throws up tomorrow. Oh, they've got to limit Giannis' shots around the ring. Otherwise, the, it, this will be too all, I reckon. I think it will be regardless. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Now, there has been a massive week in NBL free agency. A yes. lot of big moves, a lot of big re-signings and signings. So yeah. Yep. We will talk about those next week, though, when there's a little bit less going on in the international world. Um, but, yeah, looking forward to unwrapping all of that next week. And on that NBL connection, very quick congratulations to Jamal Mosley, former Victoria Titans player, who is now the head coach of the Orlando Magic. Yeah, four-year deal. That is massive. Yeah, seems to be standard. Impressive. And now, this week in sport history. July 13th, 2019. Incredibly recent history here, but an absolutely astonishing feat. Southern Blue Crabs outfielder Tony Thomas becomes the first player in professional baseball history to steal first base in a 7-2 well, win. Hey! <laughs> Took me a while, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Fancy that. Yeah, so he stole first base in a 7-2 win over the Lancaster Barnstormers. Cracking name, by the way. A wild pitch got away from the Lancaster catcher, giving him the time he needed to take advantage of a new rule and get to first with ease. Sensational. July 15th, 1938, Arthur Fagg, F-A-G-G, becomes the first batsman in first-class cricket to score a double ton in both innings of a match, scoring 244 and 202 not out for Kent against Essex. This included a 283-run stand with Peter Sunnox in the second innings before Kent declared giving Essex around four overs to chase 393 runs, so just 100 per over. They nearly got there too. <laughs> July 16th, 1896 in, form typical of the English cricket team, did you know that the first ever Indian-born test cricketer actually played for England. It came during the second test between England and Australia at Old Trafford with Ranjit Sinji, who was born in Kathiawa in India, coming in at first drop, scoring 62 and 154 not out as Australia won a tight match by just three wickets. Mm, a long history of stealing players from other mm. teams. July 17th, 1902. Struggling financially, principal owner of the Baltimore Orioles, John Mann, is forced to sell his interest to Andrew Freeman, the principal owner of the New York Giants, and John T. Brush, the owner of the Cincinnati Reds. On the same day, Freeman and Brush released Joe Kelly, Joe McGinnity, Roger Bresnahan, Jack Cronin, Cy Seymour, and Dan McCann from their contracts, leaving the team with just five players to face the St. Louis Browns. They obviously had to forfeit, and after borrowing players from opposition teams, they eventually moved to New York and wouldn't return until 1954. For their last game at Oriole Park in 1902, they managed a crowd of just 138 people, a sad end to their tenure there, but... They do boast Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld as one of their fans. There you go. July 18th, 1999, Scotsman Paul Laurie wins his only major title by three strokes in a four-hole aggregate playoff with Justin Leonard and John Vandervelde. Coming back from 10 shots behind after the third round, the biggest comeback in major championship history. This tournament is most well-known for Vandervelde producing one of the greatest chokes in the history of golf oh, as he yeah. took a triple bogey seven on the 72nd hole when a double bogey six or better would have delivered him the win. Ugh. Keep an eye out for an upcoming choke special where we discuss this in much greater detail. And we've only been teasing that for about a year. Yeah, but we're actually going to record that soon. Yeah, in a year or two. Yeah, but no. <laughs> this week in sport history. So, Stewie, we've neglected the AFL for a while now, but we've got to get back into it as uh, the basketball's finally come down a little bit. But I did forget about those international friendlies. Let's go with the tips. I'm not very happy about my last three weeks. Yeah, I mean, I'm not ecstatic about mine. I've made up a little bit of ground on you. Got it back to six finally. So I had six out of nine two weeks ago. 
uh, five out of nine last week and four out of nine. So I'm on the, the downward slope at the moment, but I'm missing the margins by quite a bit. I had four, five, and three. Yeah. Ugh. It's It's been ridiculous how many upsets there have been. Teams you're expecting to make runs like Richmond, for example, keep losing. The, your Swans keep causing upsets left, right, and center. I've got to say something about that, Richmond. Attention, Richmond fans. If you've got to invade the pitch, maybe don't do it when your team has a little bit of momentum. So in that game against Gold Coast a couple of weeks ago, Richmond had a bit of momentum. They were going forward. Then a couple of their idiot fans jumped on the field, stopped the game, allowed Gold Coast to set up their defense, and the rest is history. The Suns won. Mm. So word for the wise there. Mm-hmm. A couple of other things quickly. I reckon Zach Williams was very lucky to only get a week smashing a bloke's head onto the AstroTurf. I don't know how you feel about that one. Yeah, I think... Doing it on the grass is bad enough, but when you're bringing in, I mean, AstroTurf, we've seen bits of the AstroTurf that have had exposed bolts and other Oh, it's so, not good. So, yeah, probably very, very lucky. I suppose on that note, Luke Shuey was very yeah, lucky against the Swans. He was. I think he should have. I, I know he apologised straight after, and I don't think he intended. No. But if you elbow a bloke in the head, you probably need to get a week for it. Yeah. I mean, you could obviously see that he was, as soon as he hit the head, he realised that that wasn't the part of the body he was going for, but. Yeah, you've got to take responsibility when you're throwing an elbow regardless. So I think you probably should have got a week. Now, I watched a lot of AFL the last week and a bit. I watched the shitstorm that was Adelaide and Essendon. <laughs> you poor bastard. Would you believe Archie Perkins, three goals, three twenty-one, actually drew with the Crows, two goals, nine twenty-one. That is the worst score in Adelaide Crows history. Mm. And yet they still may not finish Wooden Spoon. Quite remarkable. Well, yeah, West Coast helped them a little bit. Todd Goldstein has a new record for Ruckman. He now has 8,503 hitouts. Now, there was that period where he was kind of going back and forth with Sandy. Sandy's now retired. He didn't come back in the mid-season draft like some people tried to pull him out of retirement. So Goldstein will only improve on that record. And hey, they beat your Eagles after my team smashed your Eagles. Why did you have to bring that up? I know. I thought I was quite nice about not rubbing rubbing (laughs) that big win in your face. we We will talk about that in a few minutes. Melbourne finally scored over 10 goals this weekend after three weeks in a row where they failed to. Jack Rewalt kicked his 700th. Pretty impressive effort. He'd be right up there in the Tigers' history of forwards, along with Richo, among others, I would say. It's, uh, yeah, that's no, very elite company in this day and age. And then there's the weird Hawthorne succession plan. So they've announced that Clarko will see out his contract, but he'll do it with Sammy Mitchell kind of waiting in the wings. And really, it's got to be said, only... Succession plans involving Paul Ruse have worked. So there was Johnny Longmire at Sydney and then obviously Goodwin currently at Melbourne. But the the Woosher Rutten one didn't go well and the Bucks Malthouse one didn't go well. So there's no reason to believe that this will go well because apparently they're already at loggerheads a little bit. Well, there's there's two things I'll say about this. Firstly, who the hell would want to be inheriting Hawthorne right now anyway? <laughs> well, Mitchell did play for them. So that's that's a nice story. Yeah, but and he's a sought after coach. But their team is rubbish, and they've got no good young players. Yeah, well, they beat us by forty ish. Yeah, okay, but it's weird, isn't it? it, it then we it went is. and beat the dogs. But then the other thing I'll say is that I wouldn't be surprised if Mitchell was the primary coach in two thirds of next season anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, that's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. I think Clarko will basically be his training wheels, and yeah, that'll be that. It's a very savvy move by Hawthorne, though, because Collingwood would have been sniffing around for Mitchell among other teams, potentially Carlton, although they may be winning too much now to get rid of T. Oh, absolutely, they are. But yeah, I think that was a good move by Hawthorne. It was savvy. Hmm. So we thought with six rounds left, we'd look at the ladder and maybe try and rule a line through some teams and work out who are legitimate contenders. So we thought we'd look at a few of the teams towards the top of the ladder and look at their contention for the premiership and then a few of the sides hovering around the eighth spot to kind of see who we think will make the top eight. 
it seems like everyone's trying to avoid it right now because of all the losses that are piling up. But it, uh, yeah, look, we'll start at the top. It's pretty obvious we'll be in agreement here. Melbourne, the Western Bulldogs and Geelong are clear, the class teams. clearly the three class teams. Yeah, okay. Melbourne with a win over the other two, but that could change with time. So I think the first team that really has a question mark next to them is the Brisbane Lions. Oh, big time after the Hipwood injury, and they've already got Rainer out for the season too. That's huge. So their run home looks like this. Richmond away, Hawthorne away, Gold Coast at home, Fremantle away, Collingwood home, West Coast home. No real issues with the draw. There. No, that's actually a decent run, isn't it? It's very, very soft. I think, as you mentioned, the big problem is the injuries. Yes. So Eric Hipwood has been officially ruled out for probably the next 12 months. So important in that forward line. So that puts a lot of pressure straight back onto, onto Danaher. Yep. Who hasn't really had an amazing season. He's bit. overrated he's, and he's made a glass. He's been decent, but he has yeah, he hasn't been amazing. A lot of the defenders, so Darcy Gardner's probably due back around the start of the finals. As you said, Cam Rayner's out for the season. We saw their defenders get taken apart by St Kilda's bigs over the weekend. Yeah. Mostly by Max King and Tim Membry. I think the interesting thing with Brisbane is... Richmond, Frio, West Coast are all teams that are on the bubble for the finals. So you'd hope that they would put up a bit of an effort. So even though it's kind of a soft run, they should get a bit of challenge. I watched that St Kilda game. It's hard to make a choice on one game, but at this point, I don't know if they are premiership contenders. I don't think they are. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So obviously the injuries are the big one, but the second one as well, they're going to have maybe one home final this year. So they're not going to have the luxury of all the home finals like they did last year. I'm not going to rule a line through them because their midfield at its best is up there with the Demons and the Bulldogs were best in the competition. But I don't think they're going to win it this year. The margin for error has shrunk. Yes. Yeah. So beneath them, also on 44 points, is Port Adelaide. And look, you've been pretty critical of them all season. And I've got a stat that backs up your criticism. So of the current top eight, Port are 10-0 with 166% against teams outside the current top eight. They're 1-5 and five with 74% against teams currently in the eight. And that was against my Swans was about nine points, I think. Ten, ten, ten points a couple and, of weeks ago. And, and in Adelaide as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's really damning. That that says, that says screams pretender. Yeah. Well, them, they beat Fremantle, who are now in the top eight. But when, they, when Freo were outside the top eight, they beat them by six goals. Oh, sorry. Was that the start? Yeah. Okay. Even so, it's not a good... No, it's no, not no, a good no, no. Well, that's just like an extra, another team that they've beaten. But no, I absolutely agree with you. They don't have any real big scalps. I mean, as you mentioned, the Sydney win by 10 at home. Uh, They're expected to win. It's that. not really that big a scalp. If you look at some of these other teams, so they lost to West Coast by 37. They lost to Brisbane by 49. They lost to the Bulldogs by 19. Geelong by 21. Melbourne by 31. So... They're playing these big teams and yep. coming up short. And they're without Robbie Gray for at least a month, maybe five weeks, according to the injury list. Yeah. Now, their run home looks good. St Kilda away, Collingwood at home, GWS to be confirmed, Adelaide home, Carlton home, Bulldogs away. It's not the best run, but it's... No, not- but again, St Kilda and GWS are vying for spots and the Dogs are a bloody good team. Now, catching them in the final week might be a good thing because the Dogs might be resting players heading into the finals. Yeah, it's an interesting run home. So... Port have only scored 100 points once since round two, and they've got three scores under 60 in that time as well. That's ugly. I don't know that they're going to generate enough scores or handle the pressure of elite sides. Now, you watch the game over the weekend that they just played against Melbourne. The Demons absolutely pressured them right off the park. Yeah, it was an impressive win by the days. It, it was. I, I thought Port were going to win that one. Yeah, it was So good. I'm actually prepared to rule a line through Port for that very reason. They just don't come to play. They don't look sides. like a premiership team. I agree. No. 
So we'll move on to your Swans now. Yes, on an island on 40 points with teams above them on 44 and the teams below them on 32. You've so fairly safe in that spot. Good bit of, yeah, good bit of a buffer between you and Fremantle and West Coast now. And I've got to say, pretty good injury list at the moment too. Oh, why did you say that out loud? Well, yeah. <laughs> no, the, the thing that works against the Swannies is they may not play at home again for the rest of the season. So I've had all these people go, oh, your Swannies are going all right. They'll 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 be great at, at home. And I'm like, yeah, but, and I've had numerous people say this, but they may not play at home. Well, <laughs> they may have to play in Geelong. Well, let's look at your run home. So GWS away. Big game. Fremantle home in inverted commas, playing down at, at Goomba. Now, we're assuming they'll play in Geelong. We don't know where they'll play, but... You... That's, no, that's pretty much been locked in. Now. Oh, has it? Okay, yeah. oh, there you go. Yeah. All right. Then you've got Essendon and St Kilda away, North Melbourne away, and Gold Coast at home at this stage. Yep. So, obviously, a big if, depending on how Sydney can get out of COVID. They're just absolutely covered in it right now. Yeah, the last two are pretty good, but GWS, Freo, Essendon, St Kilda, the next month, they're all teams vying for those final spots in the eight. But having said that, I think the Swans are a sneaky chance of making the top four. Oh, definitely. Absolutely, we are. So, the reason for that, though, is if you look at, they've only lost two games all season by more than 10 points. And both of those were real surprises, like Hawthorne and Gold Coast. Yeah, yeah, they were, yeah. But you know that the Swans are only going to be, for the most part, one or two moments of brilliance away in any game. Yep. They have that really good balance between youth and experience. Yep. <clears throat> they tackle ferociously, second most tackles in the competition. Forward blind pressure is magnificent. They generate a lot of goals. I was actually surprised to see their fourth in goals and inside 50s in the competition. We are a little bit more accurate than most teams. So we don't always kick as many scores as other teams. But when we do kick Jordan Dawson, I've talked about a lot of our young players. Jordan Dawson is magnificent. He's one of the best kicks in the competition. Oh, absolutely he is. And Josh Armadi is a very exciting young prospect too. I think one of the really impressive things about Sydney is the way they take the game on. They're fearless through the middle and it's the disposals. Pretty slick disposals and you need to be really good with your skills when you are using that game plan. But the Swans have shown that they can do it. And all of that despite only Richmond and St Kilda copying a bigger negative free kick disparity across the whole season. Wow, there you go. So, look, I'd be surprised if the Swans went super deep. Maybe a prelim? Maybe? Well, hey, if you make the top four and you win that first week, you're into a prelim straight away. Yeah. I I think, again, talking of margins for error, I I, I actually do believe this Swans team could win a premiership. I think realistically it's a year or two away. I think we're a year ahead of progress. Yeah. But based on this year, I think I think we could win next year or the following year. I don't think this year is the year. No. But if they caught lightning in a bottle like the doggies did the year they beat us. That's very true, actually. It could happen. Yeah. It I- could happen. And like I say, with the injury list <laughs> mm. looking all right, you never know. But no, I'm not holding my breath because no games at the SCG. Yeah. Watch one of your big players go down next week. Yeah. <sighs> So now we get to a different kind of line. The line for teams making the finals or not. Yes, this is the dubious little run here. Starts out west. So let's start with the Fremantle Dockers who are sitting seventh at the moment. Their run home, Geelong at home, Sydney away, Richmond home, Brisbane home, West Coast home, St Kilda away. Hardest run home in the comp. Is brutal. It is brutal. I think the only saving grace is that they're playing really good footy right now and they might have some teams at home in Brisbane and West Coast who are a bit vulnerable because of injuries and general form. And they finally have some backmen that are playing. So Pierce and Logan back and they're playing quite well too. So mm-hmm. yes, Cox still out, Hamling's out for the season, Frederick's going to be out for a long time, but they that derby, Shuey. It could come down to that derby. It could be. It's going to be huge. I think Frio need to win four out of six to guarantee themselves making the top eight. I think you're probably right. And I don't think they do. Yeah. Well, not with that run. You'd have to suggest that they probably won't. I think they miss out and finish ninth. 
which is going to suck because they've they've played such a, a great season. I think this is actually a lot of it's going to come down to, as you mentioned, the Derby, but also the game against Geelong. So Gary Rowan's just been ruled out. Okay. So no Rowan, no Cameron in the forward line. Gives them a good chance to maybe hold Geelong to a score that they can beat. Mitch Duncan's still out for an extended period too. Yeah, it's a good time to catch Geelong, I yeah. think. Yeah, look, if they sneak in, they might get one elimination final. It's just, it's hard to see them going beyond that. And they'll be shaking their head about some missed opportunities like that recent Carlton game. Yes. That could come back to haunt them. Absolutely. Next on to the other WA team, the Eagles. Yeah. Okay. So run home, Adelaide away, St Kilda home, Collingwood away, Melbourne home, Frio home, Brisbane away. Now, before Monday night, I would have said the Eagles were shooing for the finals. Yep. And then when you lose to North Melbourne at home, yeah. in the fashion the Eagles did yep. after being pantsed by Sydney and the Bulldogs in the previous two weeks. It's not looking good. It raises questions about effort. And I think they're the second oldest list in the comp. Yeah, second oldest behind Geelong. Behind Geelong. So, yeah, not good. And couple that with being the worst pressure side in the competition. Their tackling is abysmal. Barras is still out a few weeks. He's a big player to be missing. Yeah. Yeah. They're just a step behind at all times. I think maybe they finish eighth and then lose an elimination. Yeah, well, it could be Swans Eagles, 5v8. Yeah, and I would not want to be any part of that, no, quite I'd, frankly. So. I'd rather play you guys than some teams, I'll be honest. Well, I think anyone would want to play us right now. Them on current form. Not looking good. So but, hey, according to Wayne Kerry, there's still a premiership chance. No, I would... I would underline them and then rule like three lines oh there's no way they're a premiership chance in fact I would scribble through them no way maybe win the the WAFL premiership but it's not looking great then we move into the four that are just outside the top eight so could climb in so St Kilda Port Adelaide at home, West Coast away, Carlton home, Sydney home, Geelong away, Fremantle home. It's got to be said the Saints are on the same amount of wins as Freo and the West Coast Eagles, but their percentage is woeful. Yeah. I I love the fact that round 23 against Freo could decide whether the Saints play finals. Yep. It's unlikely they make much noise when they get there, but they're actually the hottest team in the league right now. Right, they beat Brissy. And Richmond, who... Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're well, what playing, do we say about They're not Richmond? playing amazing, but they smashed them. Yeah. Held them for two goals in the game. Yep. They're the only team that have won their last three games. So, there you, go. you know, you've still got to, got to do that. Since round 15, they've been number one in the competition in disposal difference. They've been number one in the competition in scores from forward half stoppages. And this is two stats. They were 16th and 18th in the league in. Wow. Up to that point. Yeah. So, okay. look, they actually, I give them a sneaky chance of making a run at seventh. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Which would be a phenomenal story considering they were 13 three rounds ago. I, I, I think St Kilda makes it. Next, we have the Sneaky Draw Giants who are on 30 points thanks to that draw. Yeah, could be a handy couple of Oh, points. yeah, they're always handy come the end of the season. So Sydney home, Essendon away, Port Adelaide to be confirmed, Geelong away, Richmond home, Carlton away. Sydney neutral, it's got to be said, not home. Yeah, well, I, I, say, <laughs> I say home because yeah, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I want to believe in the Giants. This would be an amazing story after that mass exodus at the end of last season. I thought they would struggle to win more than a couple of yeah, games yeah, this season. Yeah, we were both sceptical. And look, their injury list isn't terrible, so... They are such a Jekyll and Hyde team. They really are. You never know which team you're going to catch on any day. Like, they beat Melbourne one week, and then the next week they lose to the Gold Coast. Yeah. After being up 10 points with about three minutes left. Is the Josh Kelly contract stuff going to be a distraction? Quite possible. I mean, anytime you've got arguably your best player. Oh, yeah. In fact, I don't even know if it's arguably. I don't think it is. I think he's their best player. I don't see how having that on the table is anything other than a distraction. But, yeah, I mean, again, they're another team they... They get in, what do they do? Yeah. They probably run the table and win the Premier League because <laughs> they're playing, they're they're playing good teams. So. They have upset potential, but they have to get there first. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't put my money on them. 
Then we have two teams on 28 points, Essendon and Richmond. We'll start with the Bombers. So they run home, North Melbourne at home, GWS at home, Sydney at home, Western Bulldogs at home, Gold Coast away and Collingwood at home. Now, they're not all home games. They're just all being played at Marvel, yeah. <laughs> which is basically a home game for yes, us. Yes, yes. I don't know what to make of the Bombers. I would literally be as unsurprised with them going 6-0 and as them going 0-6 as them going three and three. Yeah, that's a that's a really tough one, isn't it? Looking at that, like, yeah, it's it's very unpredictable. For the record, I think they will probably go about three and three. And they'll, probably. They'll probably lose round 23 to Collingwood to cost themselves a spot in the final. Oh, yeah, that'd hurt, wouldn't which it? Which would be such an Essendon thing to do. Yeah. No Hurley, no Mosquito for the season. McGrath basically for the season. But the injuries could be worse. But yeah. They're not a final side for me. Don't think so. I think you, I think you can rule a line through them. And neither are Richmond, let's face it. Yeah, they've got a, a tough run home. Brisbane at home, Geelong away, Frio away, North Melbourne home, GWS away, Hawthorne home. Can I just say, ding dong, the witch is dead. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Their injury list, Joey. Huge. Bolter, five to six weeks. Hooley, three to five weeks. Choll, Edwards, Lambert, Nankervis are all on a test, so they could come back this week. Soto indefinite. Vlosten, one to two weeks. They are cooked. And this is the problem. They haven't had any continuity in their squad because of their injuries. You mentioned Nan Curvis being a test. He's been out for a while now. Yeah. Mabor Chol has done the best he could as a basically Pinch as like a pinch ruckman for the entirety of the game. Yep. But he's just not up to it. No. And unfortunately, when you're going up against guys, I mean, he got absolutely taken apart by Brody Grundy last week. Mm. And this is the problem. I said last year going into the finals, that an injury to Toby Nankervis would be enough to derail Richmond. It took a little bit longer than we expected, <laughs> but here we are. They could easily lose their next three. I don't see how Richmond even makes a run at top eight. No, I think they're cooked. Yeah. All right, sure, you know what that music means. What are you out for? Well, I'm actually really excited for Geelong's visit to Perth to take on the Dockers tomorrow night. Geelong looked beatable against Carlton. Freo play really well at home. This should be an absolute cracker. Huge game. Obviously, very, very excited for the end of the NBA Finals. Come on, the Suns. How about yourself, mate? Well, I'd like to see Australia actually win a T20 match. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That would be a miracle, quite frankly. We'll talk about the cricket next week as well, because we haven't uh, gone there yet. We will, though, eventually. Obviously, NBA Finals is huge as well. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.